Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. It was almost like we had this intense relationship with our government. We really liked what they were doing and then it ebbed away and then kind of broke up with the government and now we look back on it. And we're not looking back on it fondly, we're looking back at the moment where we'd had enough of it. Hello, lovely people of pods and welcome to the show. Uh, I'm Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia. And with me down the line in Sydney is the lovely Peter Lewis, executive director of Essential Media. Hi, Pete. Hey, Catherine. Uh, If Pete is on the show, this can only mean one thing. We are talking about polling. Yes, we are. And specifically, we are talking about the results from the latest Guardian Essential poll. Uh, There's lots to unpack here. So why don't I set the scene for the listeners? So... In this cycle of polling, we asked the respondents questions about how they were feeling about the voice to parliament, also for their reflections on COVID. Now, why did we do COVID? Well, because the government's recently set up an inquiry uh, that will examine the response, or at least some of the responses, at the height of the pandemic, and we wanted to really... I guess, come to terms with how people were feeling about how their governments managed the pandemic a little bit further down the track. Uh, We also are not content with a couple of meaty topics like The Voice and COVID. We also ask people to share their views about the nature of reality. Because we can. Because we can. (laughs) Because Peter Lewis wanted to. Uh, so, yes, anyway, it's uh, it's fascinating, actually, and we will get to the nature of reality as we work through our various topics. But given we're two weeks to polling day, though, in the referendum, or less than two weeks, aren't we? It's less than two weeks to polling day in the referendum. Peter, why don't we start with the voice to parliament? What What are the folks saying about it? What do the numbers tell us? So I do feel like starting this as most of our recent podcasts, it has felt a little bit like referendum death watch. Um, There is a little, look, I wouldn't say it's a surge, but there has been a two-point uptick in national support and a two-point downwards move on no, 49, 43, 8% undecideds. Now that is two points. One is that's margin of error on yep. a poll of a thousand plus or minus three percent is nothing to get excited about. But 
It was interesting. The PM did get excited about this morning and he actually referenced our poll to, to give a bit of hope to the troops. And look, the other point that we always make is this is not a scoreboard. It's a thermometer. And I think it is fair to say that the Yes campaign has been working really, really hard on the ground across the country. They've been running their paid campaign, you know, even in the last 24 hours, um, the grand final hero, Ivan Cleary coming out, pro-voice, Peter Garrett running the ads, all those little bits to very targeted markets. There is a scenario that the campaign has bottomed out and we've got two weeks to go. I know there were calls around civil society today about the project to make a million phone calls to undecided voters over the next few weeks. All that hard work does matter and the polls will not get in the way of that. If the work is done and opinion changes, then it could be a remarkable result come Saturday week now, isn't it? It's only two weeks away. But the reality base is that the no vote is firm at 42. Hard yes is at 30. There's 27 in play, double the number of soft yes to soft no. There's a lot of work still to be done if this is going to be anything other than, you know, a national day of real sorrow. Yeah. At this point in campaigns, you and I joked yesterday, possibly a bit of gallows humour, about momentum as in uh, margin of error. Yes, it's momentum. a polling joke that I don't know if it scans <laughs> on radio, but we got momentum. Well, we'll, we'll find out. M-O-E-mentum, we do. I would only just add one thing to your observations. Look, it is a margin of error movement. Last fortnight, we had a margin of error movement that went the other way, that actually put no in majority for the first first time in our survey. But I do think it is interesting, though, without getting carried away, that it is the first positive movement in the direction of yes for some months. It's been completely stuck and all of the movement has been the other way. But as you point out, though, it's sort of <laughs> given given the strength of the no vote, it would be the most remarkable comeback story in recent campaign history. Or the most I significant think. polling fail, one or the other. One or the other. But every credible poll has picked up the withering away of the initial support for yes. Um, and I do want to just pause for a minute to think about the role polling plays in a campaign because we are really conscious, you and I, of how polling shapes its own reality. We're not going to put another poll out. Like we could potentially rush out our last essential report and put it out 24 hours beforehand, but what good will that do one way mm. or the other? So I think we're going to sit back now and reflect on what happens. I don't think the story will be that the polls cost the campaign the result, but I think that two-way interaction between polling and political zeitgeist does play this role that I find I'm a little bit uncomfortable with. Mm. So even the fact that we had a little bit of MOE momentum today and it works for good, like it's still, it's an intervention that probably in a perfect world we wouldn't have, but it's playing a role. Well, it's sort of funny. Long-time listeners will know that at some level 
Peter and I sort of <laughs> been in a long-term self-hate of these cycles, even though we do them, because obviously taking the pulse of the nation is interesting and reporting it is also interesting, but we try not to reduce these things to horse races. But anyway, it is a campaign. There will be a winner. There will be a loser. And this is the racehorse race now. Um, and interesting, the one other thing that comes out, Catherine, I don't know if you're about to get with it, was the real mover has been that the main driver of no votes is it will divide Australia in the constitution yes. the basis of race. Previously, it was it would not make a real difference. Yep. That has shifted. And if you think about the advertising the no campaign's doing, it, 46% of no voters say that's their number one reason. Yes. I was, in fact, going to cue you on that. I was going to cue you on two things, actually. One, that, those questions that we asked this week, we basically asked undecided voters and the no folks. Well, we gave them a list of, a shopping list, basically. What's what's the most influential thing governing your vote at this point in time? And as Pete says, the top of the pops is the campaign message of the no campaign, which is, you know, division and bloody, bloody, blah. So that's interesting. I think it's also interesting that very consistently, though, we've been sort of uh, talking about how consistent or, or that the no voters built up and, and stayed fixed, stayed pretty consistent, uh, notwithstanding our momentum. Young people, voters under 34, still majority supporters of The Voice, 18 to 34-year-olds. I think it was 66% support in that cohort. Older you get, support just drops exponentially once you're over the age of 34. I think that's I think that's actually... It's almost a mirror image, isn't it? It's still yeah. almost a mirror image that the, I think, 18 to 34, it's 60, 68% support. Um, uh, that's about the level of opposition amongst yes, over 55. exactly. Well, obviously, we see this on a range of issues. It's not just the voice, but I just think mm -hmm. that's so intriguing. The other thing, just going to your point before we move on to COVID in a tick, you make the point that we have this sort of discomfort with the role that polling plays in our national conversation, that it sort of becomes its own narrative. We did ask a question in this cycle, uh, you know, what do people think is going to happen, basically, on referendum night? Will it be yes? Will it be no? I think it's nearly half. Was it 49% say it's going to be no? Yeah. They think it's going to be no. And that presumably reflects people digesting polls. However, 50% of yes voters dare to dream. Um, so they're 50 yes, 23% no. Um, whereas no voters at 76% no, 7% yes. So again, it may be sort of presaging a little discussion. We do create our own realities. And I yes. think um, yeah. there are different realities at play all the time in politics. But back to the the age, like I might have mentioned it when talking about this with Paul while you're away, but it strikes me that Australia is not just a nation of regions, it's also a nation of generations. And sometimes we don't quite pick that up. So if you're over 55, like I am, when you were growing up, you had a portrait of the Queen in the school hall and everyone's saying, God save the Queen. And, you know, it was normalised. Under 35s grew up where that was less a thing and it was acknowledgement and welcome to country. So there, there had been a very different story of Australia in those groups and it just is so, it's there in stark relief. Like, and it's it's not all over 55s. I was at a Yes 23 in a West event the other night and they had the perfect band for um, 
NOS 23 hoodoo gurus. <laughs> I was going to say. That everyone had grey hair, right? And, yeah. and so there were some great older Australians, but the culture that they're part of was one where this is a harder ask than young people who just go, yeah, whatever, and good on them. So that that generational divide, I think, on that, on climate, on economics, like it is the, the bit of politics that I think we still haven't quite understood. Yeah, um, We used to think people were in tribes or you inherit a, a political party like you'd inherit a football club. I think it, it's different now. There are parties talking to different people on their generational journey. Yeah, and it's also interesting that if we look at the Scanlon social cohesion data, which I'm always interested in, if we think about young Australians, they're kind of less bought into the whole national project. And by that, we mean the sort of attitudes that you were mm. referencing there, Peter, in terms of, you know, what was the dominant narrative as you were growing up. So anyway, it's very intriguing. And uh, uh, you mentioning Hoodoo Gurus, we should, of course, just remind the listeners that you are assisting uh, Yes23 and uh, working with progressive groups, yeah? So we just need to... Yeah, we're rolling out a whole bunch of town halls around the country. We're not in the sort of room doing the strategy or the research stuff. I'm saving that for The Guardian. But um, <laughs> we have been doing some great events. I think with our last one on Thursday out at um, Bankstown, actually. So we've yeah. run about 50 of them. They've been terrific. Yeah, interesting. Okay, let's roll into COVID now, and we are creeping ever closer to reality because this oh, is... We're or the to, opposite. We're, exactly. <laughs> according to some of the findings. Exactly. Yeah. We're going to hit an intersection point here, but let's, I mean, we'll get to reality, but let's just sort of map out what the numbers tell us. Obviously, COVID's not over. People are still getting sick, but we are over the, the sort of opening... Yeah, I'll never forget that opening 12 months. I will never forget yeah. that. Well, we really became probably very close comrades then because we started running the virtual discussions of the Guardian report yep. on a Zoom before it became a podcast. And I remember it gave us a really useful anchor point to be understanding everything going out, particularly that, if you remember, that massive level of public support as the government stood up and of both political parties and all state and federal, that first 12 months, there was a real sense of, I think, cohesion and joint purpose. Yeah, that, there was. Um, yeah, and there, there was, was like people liked what they saw. It was like approval of whether it was Morrison or Gladys or Dan, it was all in the 70s. And like there wasn't a single person in WA who didn't <laughs> approve of the work that <laughs> so Martin McDowell was oh doing. God. There might have been one, yeah, but yeah, yeah, they were lonely. Yeah. We were <laughs> unable to find that one person who disapproved of Mark McGowan. But anyway, look, remarkable time. I'm sure listeners have not forgotten it. But yeah, Peter and I collaborated really closely during that period on that body of research that was so important then and it's really interesting now. So it, was, it sort of feels like we're getting a band back together, really, going yeah, back yeah. to COVID. But anyway, uh, so what is... COVID-19. So, <laughs> sorry, that was bad at the time. No, 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 it's all good. So what do the responses in this poll tell us broadly about where we're at several years down the track in terms of how we view the response of yeah. our governments? So we, we purposely went back and just asked how they rated the performance of both the federal and the state governments. And what's interesting, so if you remember, it started off, we were really worried and it was low, and then it sort of went up to really high approval and then through 2020, I think kind of peaking in you know mid to late 2020. And then mm -hmm. by the end of 2020, 21, we'd had enough of it. And we yep. were kind of back on most things like 40, 40. And what's interesting is, so we haven't asked this question about the performance for over 
a year, maybe even longer, May mm. 2022, so 18 months, and it's almost exactly where it was when we yeah. stopped asking the question. So the mm. world has moved on and it was almost like we had this intense relationship with our government. We really liked what they were doing and then it ebbed away and then kind of broke up with the government and now we look back on it and we're not looking back on it fondly, we're looking back at the moment where we'd had enough of it. Mm. And I was a bit interested in whether people would look back and mark Morrison in retrospect, not that we named him, but his performance more highly than we did coming out when, you know, the the mistakes were made, but we haven't. So there's been no sort of reaction, reaction's not the right word, there's been no reassessment to the positive of his performance. And likewise, with all the states, it's dropped a bit from at the end. So even McGowan is, or WA government looking back, it's down as low as 65%. Can you believe it? crisis. If he hadn't resigned, that would be probably him going out the door. But um, they've all dropped a bit from where they were, but they all peaked really, really highly when the government was stepping up, taking the health advice. So I think what this says is that the public's kind of moved on from what happens. And I think it's going to be quite a heavy lift for the government or anyone that's trying to sort of focus political attention back on this to actually get much traction. Mm. I might be wrong, but I feel like it was such an all-consuming and intense and quite disturbing period. And our freedoms were ceded to the greater good and some people broke under that. And there is, as we'll see, there are numbers that say that people did break. And so the risk is we don't look back on it and think through what we could learn because we just don't want to well, well, twofold. There's that risk that you identify because, as you say, it's sort of like we kind of rode a curve of really getting behind the efforts of government and then we were all fatigued and irritated by things that weren't working, right? We sort of had the everything's working period, then we had the everything's really annoying the crap out of me period, and that's kind of where we've bottomed out in terms of sentiment. So you're right, it's sort of getting people to refocus their it's difficult because it's it's traumatic at one level. But at another level, Peter, I was really interested that a majority, it's not a huge majority, but a, a majority of people actually do think, though, that we will be better prepared for the next pandemic when that inevitably happens. And that's, that's kind of interesting, mm. right? Because, it, again, even though we've got this sort of landing point where we're mapping the sentiment at which people exited the whole experience, right, which is meh, let's just call it meh. Mm. But at the same time, we obviously think that our governments have learnt the odd thing because uh, most of us think that they would do better or that we're reasonably well prepared for another Mm. one of these things. So that's intriguing. Yeah, so it was 52 very well or somewhat well prepared, 38 not very well prepared, I also thought it was interesting the, remember all the language at the time of build back better and things were going to make? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nah. Nah. Yeah, nah. Nah. So we asked people thinking about how things had changed since the pandemic because, you know, there were things about my life that I let go of during the pandemic, more time with family, not doing the five days a week in the office. So being in that sort of sweet spot, not that sweet, but my parents had passed, so I wasn't worried about them and I got to have this time 
that was different to how I would have yep. continued to live. I, I kind of look back and go, ah, oh, it's not like I'm glad it happened, but it, it was a good interruption in the way that I live my life. But most people don't agree with that, which is a good wake-up call for me. Most people say it is worse. Even work, which has changed significantly, it's either, most people say it's either stayed the same or things are worse. They think the economy is much worse, global community is much worse, local community, 20 worse, 14 positive, most in the middle, workplace, 23 positive, 19 negative, most in the middle, and family and friends, it's kind of meh. So again, it's almost like we've wiped it out of our mind and anything that was being promised, maybe it was just to psych us through those long, long weeks in lockdown. And there were all these forums, let's build back better and nah. Nah. The results at the moment though, and I mean, look, I'm speculating, but I, I would think we're sort of looking at that through a prism at the moment, aren't we? We're looking at that through the prism of uh, cost of living pressure and concerns about the strength of the economy. And we, we're also all acutely aware of geopolitical instability that has sort of come out the other side of COVID as well. Correct. So yeah. I think those things probably influence, again, our total picture of how we look back on that time. So uh, I'm not saying that these results would be radically different if we ask them in a different time, but it'd be, it'd be an interesting test, actually, just to see to what extent current events are kind of colouring our assessment of these things. Now, let's get into reality because I know you're absolutely busting to get there and reasonably <laughs> so. We asked a broad question, which you can take the listeners through, which was sort of about reality as thing in itself, but where we have this lovely intersection point about <laughs> whether things are real or not is uh, in relation to people's perceptions of the death toll. In, yeah. Yeah. So why don't you tell the listeners about well, that? Well, on, on the death toll, I thought, you know, we, we said what the death toll was, which is off the WHO numbers, about 23,000, which the following is closest to your review. We did well to keep the death toll to this number, or this is too many deaths and we should have done more. And I was just interested because there has been a thing that we overcorrected, but it was 46 to 38. But I thought I'd just slip in the question also, I don't believe the death toll numbers, the whole thing was overstated. Mm -hmm. And it was 16%. 16% including... of people agree, yes. Yeah, yeah. but also... And then we did our sort of typical voter breakdown. 34% of people they vote for minor parties or independents, which is like everything from UAP to One Nation and the Teals. I'm not casting aspersions on Teal votes. I just think that there are more of those others that we cluster. But it's a really big, big cohort who has got this alternate view of the world, which, and I think there is quite a correlation between the COVID denialists and, you know, let's call them the cookers and elements of the No campaign as well who have constructed a really complex theory that the COVID, it goes down to that red pill, blue pill sort of idea that the whole COVID was an attempt and the vaccines was a plot to basically lock down society and make them all take a particular pill that would um, control their brains and then they widen their eyes and then you're going deep into a whole bunch of different conspiracies that all kind of interrelate. So Yeah, well, there's quite a, a few intersection points there and we'll get to the, the central mm. framing questions about reality, but just like quick observation about that. It's sort of like you're seeing it through the red pill, blue pill matrix kind of prism and you've drawn a a link between Tenuous. some of that crowd and uh, the no messaging, uh, which I think is absolutely valid. But it's sort of like if we look at some of those parts, there was sort of like, oh, well, the rupture is 
way too strong a word, but in this period we've lived through, there are people who have sort of had their faith in institutions validated to some degree, not uncritically or Mm. not sceptically, but people who think institutions, well, they're not too bad, I guess. And then we've had people who, you know, have had their faith very much eroded in institutions. And a lot of that no messaging in the no campaign is about elites, you know, sort of seizing power and the devaluing of institutions. So Mm. this kind of leads us inevitably to 16% of people in our poll saying they don't believe an official death toll for COVID. Which is one in six people, right? Yeah, it's, it's not a lot. It's more than 16, I thought. It, yeah, yeah. yeah, me More too. than I thought. I would have thought single digits. And so I was a bit surprised to see it was as high as it was. Uh, but it's also salutary because it tells us something about the time we're living in. And then anyway, you, you asked the reality question mm. more broadly. Let's. So uh, the history of this was that I actually read this amazing book called Reality X by an Australian philosopher called David Chalmers. I think it was just before you went off and I I was wanting to do this around COVID. A shout out to a young friend of mine, Kai Thomas at ANU, who put me onto this. But Chalmers' thesis is that on the balance of probabilities, we are living in a simulation. Yep. Moore's Law says that we're going to be able to process information faster and faster and inevitably sometime in the next few hundred years, we will be able to simulate the brain and the world and potentially the universe. And if we get to that point, which he says is a better than 50% chance of getting there, it's likely that we will create more than one universe so that then there will be Mm -hmm. two or three or multiple. And so the logic that he plays with, and it's a play off the matrix, is that at some point... There are multiple universes, most of which are virtual and constructed and simulations, and the chances are we're in one of them. And so I <laughs> asked them because I've got a, I wanted to write the column and I've, I've got the poll, and 10% of people believe we're living in a simulation, or so they say when you give them the option. Another 28% saying this is one of multiple realities, which is mm-hmm. kind of, I, I think, of, in the same territories. Bit of quantum physics there, bit possibly. Of quantum, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, the fact quantum that mechanics. now they're saying that our core atomic structure is more likely to be information than matter. Yep. And then, so that outstrips the other two, which I call the sort of religious sect, set, sorry, not sect, although there's sex too. This is only one version of reality and it's part of something bigger. And 30% who say there is only one version of reality and there is nothing bigger, which is basically your your old school atheist. Atheists. So um, I don't know what that says. I, I was just playing around the nature of reality because I think COVID did create this notion that there were different people living in different realities in the same place. But I also thought that looking at that, because again, going back to how intense it was, it's not to devalue it. Look, imagine if this was a simulation, how do we go and how would we do it better? Or even with voice, it just feels like it takes a little bit of the emotional investment out of it and says, okay, well, if we did this again, how would we do it differently. So I'm not saying that we are in a simulation and Chalmers makes the point that even if we are all in a simulation, it doesn't make the reality any less valid and it doesn't mean that there are no rules and it doesn't mean that we can just say we've taken the blue pill and say this is a game so we're going to shoot everyone down. The idea is that we just recognise that there is a multiplicity of um, possibilities around us and we have actually have agency to affect where where the story goes next. Yeah, absolutely. And it's is that a, okay? Like yeah. I feel like I've jumped the metaphysical shark and I no. shouldn't have even put down the Guardian, but it was interesting to me because I just feel stuck at the moment because we get to the end of this referendum and we might end up hating each other and there must be a better way of dealing with it than that. Well, hopefully we won't end up hating each other, although 
the polarisation that this has unleashed, once unleashed, can be quite hard to contain. And I want to know what you would have answered, Catherine. <laughs> Do I think I'm living in a simulation? <laughs> oh gosh, I would have I would have laboured over this question. I honestly would have laboured over it. I don't I don't think I'm living in a simulation, but I don't know whether or not I'm living in a simulation. I think it is entirely possible for multiples of things to coexist. Uh, you know, on different planes in the same time. That uh, I have no trouble accepting that or or believing that. Um, I'm an old Catholic, so um, it's quite difficult to pony up to sort of full-scale atheism for me. I, I sort of waver between being a cultural Catholic and an actual <laughs> one. So I don't know whether I would have uh, picked the religious one. I don't know. See, it would have been uh, difficult for me because I, I could see that these it's possible for... If there is a grand game master, would they build a pod cave? <laughs> Well, I hope they would, otherwise we'd sound terrible. So, you know, it's, it's, it's important. But it's sort of like the flip side of multiples coexisting. And I quite like that because I think sort of where you're going with this is the twofold, that we still have agency, that we can shape our own reality, and uh, that there is this sort of possibility that multiple kind of truths can coexist with one another at the same time without some eruption of the space-time continuum, right? It's Which is of, kind of what politics is meant to be about, actually, managing multiple realities and finding a way of sitting it through the one prism. Exactly. But it's the hardest thing to do now because of uh, technology drags us entirely in the different directions. So you talk about like multiple realities that exist in the same time and space technology obviously is a confirmation bias mechanism. Basically, it allows us to live in our curated individual realities Mm. and it sort of erodes our muscle memory of, you know, sort of trying to find the points, the intersection points or the agreement, points of agreement between these these different states. So that's good. Well, it's tricky. It's tricky. In a way, that's the journey that our listeners who are campaigning to do those door knocking and those difficult conversations are probably at the moment taking their reality into someone else's and finding a landing point. Well, and, and in some cases, obviously, in some cases, that will work. In mm. some cases... When it does, it's quite magic, actually. Well, exactly. I think people fundamentally, like you and I, who exist in this ecosystem, we have to maintain faith in the capacity of persuasion because, you know, if we don't have persuasion, we have conflict. And mm. I, for one, would much prefer persuasion to conflict. So it's quite important that you and me and people in this ecosystem don't become cynical or close ourselves down to the possibility that persuasion still exists. I guess the big question over the over the next fortnight is, you know, how much persuasion, where and where do the balances eventually mm. fall? But anyway, we're getting way ahead of ourselves and we're right on time. So I promise better, no more philosophy for Australian <laughs> better, politics. Oh no, I was going to say philosophy tutorial, possibly, um, you know, more interesting, hopefully, for listeners and hopefully we've sparked some thoughts uh, and you might, you know, seek to persuade people of, of whatever you think is right. Uh, that might be your response to this conversation. I don't know. But thank you, as always, to my friend Peter. Uh, it's always delightful to do these conversations. And thank you to you guys for listening and sharing the podcast and all the things that you do and uh, the episode for this week was produced by Mel Chun and uh, as always the dear Miles Martignoni is the EP of Australian Politics and I'll be back with you on Saturday. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.